Yeah, we can do that. That's all right. So like late this spring, Annika gives me a phone call. Um, she was a student at uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. She went there because it's a party school. It's so funny because everyone's like, you know that's a party school, don't you? Isn't every college a party school? At any rate, she calls me. Okay, we have this conversation. She's like, I think I want to learn how to sail this summer. And uh, she has been having this uh, uh, interchange by text with a friend here in the Brainerd Lakes area who's a member of the sailing club, and, and he's willing to teach her how to sail. And so she's really stoked. And so I'm thinking in the back of my head. Maybe I should spiff up our sailboat. We got a little super sunfish. Now it's the regular sunfish with a catboat rig, okay? So the regular sunfish is kind of a gaff rig. The, the, the super sunfish is a catboat rig, which means that the mast is a little bit further forward so you don't have a foresail. And also, um, it's a little, it's kind of like a poor man's laser at any rate. So I'm thinking, hey, I should get this spiffed up. There's a few things that need to be fixed. So I get it upstairs, I figure out a few things, and, and I get it in good shape, cleaned up the deck, cleaned up the hall, straight vinegar, if you ever want to remove something, straight vinegar is an amazing, it's like, it's like a gift from God, okay? It'll clean up anything, all right? It's beautiful now, right? And this boat was made in the late 70s. At any rate, so she's, she's talking about how, gets home, wants to go sailing um, with this young gentleman. No problem. That's good. It's all good. No worries. She's confident. The day comes, right? It's Father's Day. Hung out here in the morning, went for a glorious bike ride in the afternoon. I come home because it had been announced, thinking the home's going to be empty because today was the day she was going to go sailing. And the individual that she was going to go sailing with said, you know, it's a little bit too windy today. Maybe it's not a best first day to go sailing for the first time. Is it ever too windy to go not go sailing? I don't know. So I just casually threw it out there because there was a little bit of hurt inside, right? Because I was thinking, hey, you know, I sail. We could have gone sailing for the first time together. So I just casually threw it out there. I'm like, if you want to sail today, the super sunfish is ready to go. She's like, I think I'd like that. I'm like, I'm in. Let's deal, baby. Let's go. Okay. So we get down there and I said, okay, just one word of caution. This is the slowest you will ever go in your life and feel the most out of control because it was blowing. I mean, there was white caps and it was blowing and it was, so we like get in the boat, we get launched, we're going, she has the gas, I have the steering wheel, we're going right. And within a few hundred yards, we get knocked down once. Bam. Because the wind is so powerful. Time issue, oceans issue, water's untapped power. Wind and water is this amazing force, right? We would dump another four times. We were tacking across the lake, and then we had the downhill run to Papa McGee. If you've never, ever been in a flat-bottom sailboat with the wind at the stern pushing you, it is the most intense experience. It was absolutely amazing. The wind totally in control. You're just trying to hang on. Feeling that power. Tennis power today, Novak versus Nick. Who do you want to have win? Two bad boys of tennis. Cycling power, legs, okay? Nuclear power, solar power, battery power. Displays of power, right? Where I live can display my power. 
what I drive, what I eat, how I live, how I drive, how I eat displays my power. We had a cat named Esther, okay? Esther was the best cat ever in the history of the world, okay? Had a pelt that was absolutely amazing. It was Anna's cat. The one peculiar thing that Esther would do, she would look you dead in the eyes, just like this. She would bore holes through you, haunch up her backside, and pee wherever she was standing. <laughs> if that isn't a boss move by a boss lady cat, just like, I am in charge here. Often we see power in the negative, right? Let me impress you with my brilliance, my wealth, my standing. And, and let's just be honest. All of our brilliance, all of our wealth, all of our standing really isn't that much. Webster defines power as the ability to act or produce an effect, a legal authority, a capacity, a right. Uh, hitting for power is the ability to get extra base hits, capacity for being acted upon or undergoing an effect. Physical might is power. Mental influence, political control can be power. Five to the third power is 125. Electricity is power. Magnification in binoculars can be power. We come to a new book today, Esther. It, it's one of a minority, okay? Books that are named after a person which are truly about the person. It's in a unique position. Now, now no offense is intended by this next statement, okay? But not even Jesus gets top billing in the name of the book. It's Matthew, it's Mark, it's Luke, it's John. Daniel, Jonah, the prophets, I, I think they're really more about the status of the people and the status of the land than they are about the individual. Ruth, Esther, and Job. Now, Job is a tough nut to crack. It's certainly about Job's life, but there's a lot of stuff going on, including this intriguing underplay that I think a lot of people miss at the beginning of Job that maybe should influence how we look at the book of Job just a little bit more. But we're not in Job today. So that leaves us with Ruth and Esther, these very unique books resting in the canon, named for their strong female lead characters. The book of Esther occurs during the exile, the Persian Empire days, roughly 538 to 332 B.C., or B.C.E., if you prefer. We're still cutting the line at the birth of Christ, no matter which abbreviation you use. The challenge really starts about 60 years earlier, okay? And it's not so much the Persians, but the Babylonians who have taken out the nation of Israel. And, and basically, the, the nation of Israel is told by Jeremiah and told by the Babylonians, hey, just keep your heads down. We're going into exile. There's nothing you can do about it. Some people rebel. The Babylonians come in with a heavy hand a couple different times and say, okay, we're done. We're done. We're taking you out. And we're taking you as exiles into our country. And so the exiles get to Babylon. Then in 540, Cyrus the Great takes over and allows some Jews to return to Jerusalem and the surrounding environment. But not all want to go. They have established lives, and some who have started out in Babylon have moved further east. There's one of four major capitals, Babylon being one of four major capitals in the Persian Empire. 
The other one is Ecbatana, sorry about that, Ecbatana in the north, um, Persepolis in the west, and then further east, the town of Susa, which is mentioned in today's text. Susa is centrally located. It was thought of as the winter palace. Um, it wasn't the summer palace um, because it got so stinking hot there. The book of Esther, why was it included? It's intriguing. It's, it's one of one or it's one of two books in the entire Bible that doesn't mention the name of God. The, the other one is the Song of Solomon. And depending upon how you interpret a very specific verse in the Song of Solomon, okay, you could say that references Yahweh, or you could make the argument that it doesn't. Okay? At any rate, it, it is in a rare, rare, rare form of a book in the Bible that doesn't mention God's name. Song of Solomon, I don't think I have the guts to preach through that one. <laughs> it's, it's love poetry, it is so spicy. <laughs> I'm, I kid you not. You want to read it after date night. I'm serious. But just because God's name isn't present doesn't mean that God is not present. The other thing about the book is there's humor, and lots of it. And especially if we allow ourselves to be, and we will be, uh, influenced by a Hebrew scholar who sees the humor in the Bible. Now, it's not slapstick humor. It's not dad joke humor. It's more ironic. And at times, it's gallows humor and a ton of schadenfreude. I mean, if you tried, you couldn't make chapter six up on your own. Another thing that's going on is the start of the Jewish holiday, Purim. And that is something that we will get into in the second half of the book. Huge, huge overview hasn't touched on all the significant things, but gives you a flavor. It's kind of like tipping your toe into Lake Superior. Verse 1, chapter 1, Esther, page 410. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all the officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, that's six months. And when these days were completed, the, feast, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver and mosaic pavement of porphyry and marble and mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to the edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. It starts with a party, right? Kings and queens. Kind of sounds like an Ava Max tune. You don't like Ava Max? Okay. 
I think it's a cool song. Good guys and bad guys and good girls. Ahasuerus, okay? There's been some debate about who Ahasuerus is, okay? Because there's no, there's no king articulated in the Persian history as Ahasuerus, okay? And so we're left to say, okay, what is happening here? Most likely it's Xerxes number one, and Ahasuerus is a corruption of a Persian name translated into a Hebrew name, which is translated then into an English name. And here's where we rely on our friend, a gentleman by the name of Yehuda Rada, okay? He thinks the name is a bit of a joke. He's a Hebrew scholar. And he says, literally, if you say the Hebrew version of this king's name, it kind of sounds like you're saying, in Hebrew, King Headache. which is intriguing because the Persians liked to drink. I mean, they really, really, really liked to drink. The law of the land was the king was drinking, you were drinking. Slightly modified here. They were a group of people who would subscribe to the idea, you can't say you've been drinking all day if you don't start in the morning. Just can't say it. And so they would. So the irony, assuming this Jewish scholar is correct, that the name kind of sounds like King Headache, is double meaning and wonderful just to start off with. This guy is a guy who is consistently, probably hungover, because you do have to stop, and that's the problem, right? That's when the headache happens. And also, the name of a king who will be responsible, under a drunken stupor, for signing the extermination of an entire group of people. What a headache! Appropriate name. Enormous territory this guy had, from India to Ethiopia, from too cold in the north to too hot in the south. King Ahasuerus, most likely Xerxes number one, ruled from 486 to 465. Second major character, Vashti exits early, and we'll get into Vashti next week, but basically the queen of the land is summoned by the king of the land, King Headache. And she's like, yeah, I'm not going to dance for a bunch of drunk guys. Her name, perhaps, another play on words, could mean beloved. Mordecai, the Benjaminite. Some are tempted to give Mordecai top billing because he is the last one mentioned in the book. The people who are tempted to give Mordecai top billing are frequently males. Esther. That's not a real name, but she is an adopted daughter. Now, this one seems obvious to me, because even though Mordecai, Mordecai is a compelling choice, the book is named after the gal. And finally, this character, which we won't meet for a, a few weeks, is this character, Haman. He's an Agagite. Now, that should immediately, for anyone who's an Old Testament scholar, go, oh, so we have a Benjaminite going toe-to-toe -to -toe with an Agagite. King Agag, 1 Samuel 15, king of the Amalekites, the group of people that Saul, King Saul, was supposed to exterminate because they were so odious to God. And King Saul didn't exterminate, and Samuel had to step in. Okay, so there is bad historical blood already in the story between Mordecai and Haman. 
there's other players that we'll be introduced to. It's one of those things that happened as the book goes along. The stakes. Depends upon who you ask. Their, their status, right? I mean, this is an impressive feast. I mean, throw a party that lasts for six months. I mean, that, that, that's some capital outlay. <laughs> we'll encounter a lot of stupid things that are done. Frequently, it's the males who are drunk who are doing stupid things. It's just the way the story plays out. I'm not like taking a shot at guys. I'm a guy, okay? I'm just like, I'm just telling you, this is the way the story plays out. There's integrity, right? Both real and imagined. And we'll see this playoff, okay, between, between the king and his advisors and rulers who view that their integrity is at stake, their imagined integrity, and then we'll have the real integrity played off against Esther and Mordecai. Likewise, honor, real and imagined. Likewise, reputation, real and imagined. Redemptive. The stakes are, are redemption, right? It's something that happens powerfully in the book of Esther that inaugurates a celebration That still happens today. Purim. There's life and there is death. And there's power. There's power on the surface. Who has it? How does it shift throughout the story? And then there's power behind the scenes. Whereas the book of Job shows God deliberations before the Job story begins, here we're left with that sense that something is moving the chess pieces, but it's not named. And perhaps more than anything else, when I read the short story of Esther, the historical account of Esther, I'm drawn to this idea of power. Who has it and who doesn't? How do they use the power and how do they not use the power? The misuse of power is rampant. And, and we see this, right? It's easy to look at leaders on a global scale and see misuse of power. Can I pick on Boris Johnson with this crowd? Is that okay? <laughs> one, of the old, one of the members of his own party said, Boris Johnson, He's probably the best liar we've ever had as prime minister. <laughs> I'm sorry if you're a Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson lover. I, didn't, I don't mean to offend any expats from the United Kingdom. But it's easy to look at leaders on a global scale, right? Even in our own country, I won't mention any. They're on both sides of the aisle. And see, this misuse of power, this abuse of power, this at times dictatorial power, And how do we wrestle with that? What would we do if we had the kind of power that the king, King Headache, has in this story? What would we do if we were king? What would we do if we had accomplished something great? 
What would we do if we possessed great wealth? The form is a short story. The important details are pulled out. Names might be slightly changed, in the case of King Headache, to make a point. Not everything that happened is told, but the things that are told are so that we know what happened. This particular story is, is heavy on plot. It's like the occurrence, occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce, okay? Have you read it, the short story? Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, Ambrose Bierce? Get it. I mean, it's not hard to find. You can Google it, right? It's just amazing, okay? It takes place during the Civil War. Wonderful short story. That's a work of fiction. This one isn't. It's heavy on plot, both occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge and Esther. And if you're a first-time reader, if you've never read the book of Esther, oh, there's so many plot twists, it's so cool. This wild list of characters. But again, we engage the text, and we come back to this idea of power. What would you do with it? What would I do with it? What would I do with the power that I have? Not thinking in terms of condemning someone else for how they use their power, but how do I use the power that I have to influence? How do you use the power that you have to influence? How do we use our resources? Do we throw 180-day ragers? If you have power, influence over people in your lives, are we compassionate? Are we charitable? Are we judicious? Are we reserved? Have we misused our power? The influence that you have, the influence that I have over others. Do we need to ask for forgiveness? Oh man, is that a hard thing to do? To be in a position of power and go to someone and say, I've wronged you? I misused the influence that I have? Power. When, when do you step in and take a stance? Because there's this intriguing theme through the book, this subterfuge of who Esther really is, and she doesn't disclose her identity until absolutely necessary. And then the power behind the scenes Esther, it will be another battle of good versus evil. And that should not surprise anyone. The bad guy isn't the king, although he is a bad guy. The bad guy isn't Haman, although Haman is absolutely reprehensible. And spoiler alert, <laughs> never mind, I won't want to spoil the alert for you. He gets what's coming to him. But this is another story of good versus evil, of God versus Satan, of God versus sin. And that should not surprise us. Neither should the ultimate outcome. This idea of power, this idea of engaging with a narrative short story. 
I was a uh, sophomore or maybe a junior at uh, University of Minnesota Duluth. I wasn't a very good student. Um, I did well just enough. At any rate, one of the books that I had was The American Short Story, taught by Barton Sutter. Probably you won't hear this, Barton Sutter, but thank you again for what you did for my life. Um, probably more than any other person, like one single person influenced how I do what I do when I'm up here. Because he taught me to appreciate the short story and the details and the information and storytelling, and, and I'm grateful. And even though I got a C in his class, not that a C is a bad grade, it's a good grade. I probably should have done better. One of the books that he referenced was a Cathedral. I'm over time. I'm still going to do it. <laughs> We're supposed to write a book, uh, write a report, a review on Raymond Carver. Died when he was 50 years old. Just had some big challenges in life, but amazing writer, right? Of Cathedral. And Cathedral is a collection of short stories, and the final short story is one in which a blind man draws a cathedral with a sighted man. Very intriguing, right? Because the blind man's like, what does a cathedral look like? And the sighted man tries just to explain it to him, and then, and then the blind man says, well, just, just draw it for me, okay? So the, the, the sighted man has his pen and hand, and then the blind man puts his hand over the top, and they draw this cathedral, okay? Amazing story, right? My review. Raymond Carver offers no new experiences for the reader, and I proceed to eviscerate him with this 150 or 200-word review. Get the paper back from Barton Sutter. Barton says, John, I've read, I've read your review, and I, I have just one question for you. When was the last time you drew a picture with a blind man? Yeah. My senses were all sitting here today. And I know we have wealth that's quite frankly beyond belief. We have influence and we have power. What if we tried something new? And maybe if you're given the opportunity to draw a picture with a blind man, you should. Or maybe for the first time in your life, the first time in my life, we truly acknowledge that what we have isn't from our hand, but it's from the power behind the story. And maybe in some of our lives, just like the book of Esther, we don't mention God all that much. But that doesn't mean he doesn't exist. And that doesn't mean he isn't real. And if nothing else, what I hope for us in going through the book of Esther is to acknowledge the reality that the power of God is behind the story of all of our lives. Please pray with me.
In the quietness of the moment, just reflect on what you have. In the quietness of the moment, reflect on the influence that you have in people's lives. In the quietness of the moment, ask God the simple question. Do I use what I have charitably, with compassion, or is it about me? Allow those questions to linger. Ask the power of the God demonstrated in his spirit to lead you to the answers that honor him, the power behind the scene. In Jesus' name, amen.